Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today's another fantastic day because, well, yeah, it is actually a fantastic day. I'm above ground. I feel good. Having said that, the, the gods of the weather out there are just playing a bit games with us. We've got a cyclone coming through here. So if there are a few odd noises here, please forgive us. This might not be the 100% sound quality that I normally strive for, but it is what it is. Okay. Sometimes life, you just have to take the opportunities that arise. And that is exactly what I'm doing with my guest here. Uh, for some reasons, our normal interview time didn't work. The, the gods of the universe had other ideas, but we improvised. And here we are today. I've got Clint Arthur with me. Clint, welcome to my show. You're an amazing man. Um, and yeah, maybe some people who are not from the United States, they don't really know who you are. And so therefore, I, I, that included me, actually. You know, I saw, saw you and I thought, oh, you would be quite a cool dude. And then I looked him up and then I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> okay, so 21 bestsellers as books. Um, if you look at any kind of pictures with Clint, you see a lot of other people on there, presidents, uh, Dr. Oz, uh, who well, I need to cheat here because most of them I don't know. Martha Stewart, Susan Summers, Caitlyn Jenner, yeah, I heard of her. Ice T, I think I heard of him. Snoop Dogg, um, that's why it's <laughs> so, this man has been around. <laughs> so, and yeah, that is that is just his his social life, so to speak. Uh, leave alone the multi-million dollar enterprises that he created. And so he's a man, he's a go-getter. He's a kick-ass dude who lives his life to the fullest. As with most of those people, and I guess I'm included in that too, although I don't rub the same shoulders, um, there is a bit of a darker side. And I'm incredibly honored for Clint to come onto my show to actually explore how to be the best man you possibly could be in mm. a high-pressure environment. Um, that is what we really need to talk about. So, Clint, That's welcome to my show. Thank you very much. It's great that you tucked that thing in about being the best man that you can be because that's what I've really been dedicated to for, wow, more than two decades now is pursuing becoming the man that I've always wanted to be. And that came out of a seminar that I took in December of 2000 called The Men's Weekend, where the goal is to eliminate any barriers between you and the man you've always wanted to be. It's beautiful. Who, who ran that seminar? Who was that catalyst in your life? Je that's Justin Sterling. Right. Don't know him. He's Have been doing those. He's been, yeah. he's been doing those since the eighties. He's done ah, a lot of those men's weekends. Very good. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's so important because that was sort of a time when only just sort of the self-improvement uh, stuff sort of came in. Um, ultimately, when I grew up in the eighties, there was you know, certainly in Germany, self-improvement. What's that? No, 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 no. So there was nothing like that in my youth. And maybe that's an excuse of mine to, to say, well, actually I, you know, coming from poor circumstances, growing up in, in an environment um, that was not supporting individuality, that was supporting hard work. You're either blue collar or white collar and you, you nose to the grindstone and then 50 years later, you get a pension. Um, that was the lives that, or the life that, was, uh, that I was looking forward to. 
The only way I could get out was by being good at school, uh, getting to university and becoming <laughs> poor dad, <laughs> enriched at poor dad comparison. So, so who were you when you were a little boy? How was your environment? Was were you well, were you uh, supported to be creative and think outside of the box? That's a great question. There was always something missing for me. I always had this sense that something was missing because my parents were always arguing when I was growing up. Did your parents ever argue when you were growing up? Oh shit, yeah, <laughs> divorcee. <laughs> yeah. With us, it, when weren't they arguing constantly? And, and I read about this thing. You know, I, I I loved to read when I was growing up. My my mother encouraged me to read, and I read a lot of books. I read. The Hobbit trilogy. I read the Foundation <laughs> trilogy. I read Dune trilogy. I read, um, and then she gave me this science fiction book called Gore, where I read 14 of those books. I, I, I read everything. I was a big reader. And one of the books I read when I was about 14, I read about this thing in the book. This businessman who was the lead character went to this business school called the Wharton Business School. And that was supposed to be the greatest business school in the world. And I went to the encyclopedia and I climbed up to the top chef and pulled down the W and looked it up. And sure enough, it was a real thing. And that's where the top business titans would send their kids to become educated about business. And I'm decided that that's where I wanted to go. And my whole life, was dedicated to that. Now you asked me, was I creative? Yes, I was the star of a lot of school plays. I was Conrad in Bye Bye Birdie. I was Tony in West Side Story. I was, uh, <laughs> okay. I, you know, okay. I, did, I did a lot of stuff. I, I also wrestled on the wrestling team and that was a big drinking environment. I mean, mm. my, okay, my assistant coach from the wrestling team, took us all out after practice one day and bought us our first girl. And I'm talking about a St. Pauli girl, of course. Right. He said, you'll never forget your first girl. Well, thanks Mike Ogdebeni. When I was 15 years old for the first girl, I appreciate that. Right. It was a big drinking environment and we used to play drinking games a lot. And, you know, we went, then we all went to wrestling camp and we got kicked out of wrestling camp because we, went to Montreal for the day on, on, a, on, a, on a little excursion. And then when we got back at two o'clock in the morning, we were all kicked out. So we went home and played buzz. That was the name of the drinking game buzz. But uh, my whole life was focused on getting into Wharton. And I, I mentioned the sports because I was a varsity wrestler on the number one New York city champion wrestling team. I was the star of plays. I was a writer because of my creative writing professor, Frank McCourt, he was just a high school creative writing teacher. Who knew that he would go on to win the Pulitzer Prize and write a memoir called Angela's Ashes that inspired all of us to want to become writers. Who knew? But I was a writer and I wrote journals all the time and I studied, studied, studied because I needed to get into Wharton. I'll tell you a great story about that. My dad took us and you'll see people walking through. I'm at my house here in Mexico. We're still doing a lot of renovation. We still have a lot of people working here. My dad said one day when I was about 12 years old, he said, come with me. We're going to go for a ride. He takes me down 
to the basement. We get in the 1972 Chrysler Newport, which was his brand new car at that time. One of the biggest cars ever made. He drives us up the FDR drive to Harlem and exits on 125th street, drives through Harlem in the neighborhood and pulls up in front of this high school. And in the high school, there's a schoolyard with a thousand giant black guys playing basketball. And he says, you see that school there? I said, yeah. He says, if you don't get into Stuyvesant High School, I'm going to have them bus you to this school. And you're going to be the only little white kid in the school. And they're going to kick your ass every goddamn day. Do you understand? I said, uh-huh. Take me home so I can start studying. And sure enough, I got into this specialized high school, Stuyvesant High School, for elite math science students. So was I creative? Yes. Uh, was I well-rounded? Yes, because I wanted to get into Wharton, and they emphasized being well-rounded. And was I a great student? Yes, I got into Wharton early decision. And, you know, I, I had been drinking a lot. This show is about drinking, right? My path to sobriety, right? <laughs> I, I've been drinking a lot on wrestling yeah. with the wrestling team. Yeah. Uh, you know what's interesting? I remember now, my 16th summer, my, my summer of my 16th birthday, I had bought a boat, a little catamaran with my friend, John Uter, the, the year before from money that I had saved up from working. I worked all my life. My first job was handing out flyers on a street corner when I was 10 years old mm -hmm. for a dollar an hour on the corner of 23rd Street and Lexington Avenue in New York City. Oh, this will be good. You see this? There they go. <laughs> hey, it's all cool. That's life. That's life, man. They are working. They are working for their money. Come on. That is, hey, and, and we're in a live show. Yeah, we, 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 we are recording, yeah. and it's cool. Life happens, man. And that is exactly when I was, what happened to you, isn't it? When I was 16 years old, I remember I set out on a little quest. I, you know, because I was drinking already. And I said, I'm going to drink every single day of the month of July. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, what an achievement. I should send you a medal. I did go, it. Can, I did let that. me go back. Let me go back a bit. Because here you were, um, you were essentially, uh, it's, it's a bit spooky, um, because we were both at the same time, I was best at school, I was, I was best uh, in, in some things, I wasn't, I, I became very good in sport in martial arts after I was assaulted. So there again, I had different drivers for me, but what I'm trying to figure out is what drove you to do that? What drove you to study? Yeah, fair enough. You, your dad had was a good catalyst there, but at the same token, you were you were driven. But what can you figure out? What actually made you do that? Compare that with with ninety five percent of the, oh, of, yeah. the of the students today, they are just oh, oh, yeah. lazy shits. So oh, what's I the know difference? Exactly why? Because I wasn't enough. There was something that was missing in my life and yeah. it took me a long time to figure it out. Yeah. See, when I graduated from the Wharton, so I went to Wharton Business School and I had a great writing teacher at the Wharton Business School, a man named Romulus Linney for playwriting. His daughter, Laura Linney, is a pretty, pretty significant actress in Hollywood. Uh, uh, Romulus Linney taught playwriting and that was, that was really good. Um, and when I was at Wharton, I told you in the pre-interview that my 
pledge master of the fraternity, I went up to him and said, sir, do you have any advice for a young man who wants to be a brother in this house? And he says, drink heavily. <laughs> Very big drinking environment. I mean, you know, it was all cocktail parties that we'd have cocktail parties all the time. Every you know, Wednesday night cocktail parties. Those were the uh, castle parties. Uh, 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 uh. And and when you're a brother, you there's always a lot of drinking. Always. We had a soda machine down in the basement next to the pool table. And for 35 cents, you could get Jägermeister beers in a can <laughs> out of the soda machine. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, <No>. Okay. <laughs> this was the environment of the 1980s. It, it was not That's correct, right? That's correct. We had a student bar in, in Heidelberg University, and that student bar was sort of down some, some steps into the cellar. Um, and there was this, this dude, he was in his 20th semester in mathematics, and he was basically the guy who was doing the, the, the master of the cocktails. And he, you know, for... Uh, for nothing, you got these kind of cocktails that should be illegal by any standard because they were basically pure alcohol and the odd little ice thrown in. And but boy, did we drink! And that was that was the 1980s. I love it how you put it there because that was the standard, was it not? That is, was who said, "Nah, you you can't drink or you shouldn't drink, and alcohol is bad for you." Sorry, I didn't get that message anywhere, nowhere in any of my circles. Mm. No, it was, that was all, that's what we did. And then I graduated from the Wharton Business School and I go home to get the attaboys from my parents. And what happens? They get into the biggest fight of all time. (laughs) My dad, my dad storms out of the house, slams the door behind him. I'm sitting on the couch with my mom. Like I sat a million times. And I say to my mom, you know, the way he resents you all these years, have you been cheating on dad? And I'm thinking, wow, where did that question come from? I never thought that in my whole entire life. And then I'm thinking, what kind of a rude son of a bitch asks his mom a question like that? That's the rudest thing I've ever said in my life. And then I'm thinking, how come she ain't answering the question? Uh-huh, exactly. And then she, and then she goes, He's not your real father. Your real father was a doctor at the fertility clinic we went to for six years trying to have you. And you look just like that guy. Imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Take that boy. (laughs) How would you feel if suddenly everything you thought you knew about who you were in a split second, poof, because you know, knowing who your parents are, that's a pretty big deal. And when you cut that out from underneath you, that does some damage. I immediately became dyslexic. Try being a writer, typing things when every word you write has all the letters backwards, right? That, that was a very difficult thing for me. Huh. And that led to me actually quitting writing for the first time. The first time I quit writing was around there. Yeah, because it was too hard to type. And also no one would read. No one would read anything that I would write. It was impossible. And I just focused on other things. But I, you know, that that was essentially what was missing. See, what was missing was I never felt like I really fit in to my dad's family. 
I felt different. And when I found that out, that opened up a big hole that was both comforting to me in a way because I didn't really like my dad's family. I love my dad. I grew to love my father who raised me, but this opened up this big hole for me. And I continued drinking and I started smoking pot around that in my twenties. I started smoking pot. I had smoked pot when I was um, 12 years old for a couple of times I smoked pot and I decided I didn't like it because it made me paranoid. So I quit smoking pot when I was 12. And then when I was about 19, I, took a little, I started smoking pot occasionally because of my roommate in college was from Beverly Hills, California, complete stoner. All he would do was smoke. <laughs> we're, you know, we're at Ivy League college. All he wants to do is smoke buds and, and take magic mushrooms and watch soap operas. That's my roommate. But, <laughs> but, um, but nonetheless, I really started drinking and smoking in my twenties and thirties and forties. And it, it was a fascinating thing how this progressed and I was able to still function uh, despite. What did the alcohol God. give you? What, what did, did the alcohol, alcohol? What did it provide you? It was a part of being a sophisticated person. That's what it provided me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Absol I go with that. Absolutely. I, I was a connoisseur of fine wine. I had toured the Bordeaux vineyards. Exactly. In, when I went on tours of Europe, mm. uh, I, you know, I knew what good wine was. I knew, I knew my wine. I knew my tequila. I knew my scotch. I knew my beers. I, I knew all kinds of things. At one of the fraternity parties that we did, it, it was fascinating. We were at one of the brothers' family farms in upstate New York. And I'm tasting the wine and it tasted exactly like the wine that I had had in Bordeaux. And I'm like, Hmm, is this, um, is this a Bordeaux blend? And he's like, yeah, it comes. It was like, I knew exactly what the wine was. I was a connoisseur. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And I, but I mean, that was, that was the, the perk exactly like that. So I was the same with wine. I loved wine. Beers were not so my thing. The wine always attracted me. Um, and, and a good port, a good port, or oh, 1966 Fonseca. Oh. I mean, please, yes, anytime. Um, so that was that was an added thing. But for me, I was intrinsically shy. I didn't fit in either. I always felt that I'm not part of, of things. And this kind of constant feeling lost, that was gone. The the pain, the 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 those kind of weird anxieties, they were gone. Give me two glasses of wine. And even nowadays, I would probably have this oh, sound effect coming through. And that was then. I, it allowed me to, to be a different persona. Uh, it allowed me yep. to no longer feel the pressure. Was that something like that in your life? You know, I just really like the feeling of being drunk and being a little bit out of control and trying to stay, you know, trying to stay alive at while being out of control. I really think that's it. Because one time I was on a subway car, like really, really drunk, coming back from a party in in Queens and the car made a big turn and I was in between the cars and I was 
hang, I was like leaning into the change. Like I was going to like, like testing how far I could push it. Oh. But, be, you know, because some people are, need the courage of alcohol. And the fascinating thing is that since I've quit and we'll talk about how I got to quit, but since I've quit, I have more courage since I've quit. I have more confidence. <laughs> since, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I it's, it's really fascinating, but uh, so that really never gave it to me. Getting drunk was a, was a hobby of mine. And <laughs> Excellent. Really, it, Excellent. Yeah. It what, was, did it, that, what did it do you in your, in your relationships? Um, did it give you a, an added bonus or were the girls, basically uh, the girls you dated and, and the girls you were together with or partners you had, were they the same, the same, uh, the same ilk? Well, everybody drank alcohol. Everybody likes to drink wine in the United States, pretty much. Mm. Nobody would drink as much as me because <laughs> I was a better I was a better drinker than them. But they would try to keep up with me. But with my wife, it was really like ritualistic for us. Mm. We've been married now. We've been together now for more than twenty years, mm. and we used to drink a lot together every night: mm. wine, margaritas. Mm. I would drink beer. From about 6.30 until two o'clock in the morning when I would, you know, fall asleep drinking a beer in bed. <laughs> yep. Okay. I can, I can understand that completely. That was the kind of very nice life. And it was a lifestyle that we appreciated. That was a lifestyle that, that felt good to it. It took me all the way through till I was 48 years old. Mm. And that's, I started going on television. Okay. So When I moved after, after I found out about my father, not being my father, I called up the investment bank on the 87th floor of number one world trade center. I got the vice president on the phone. I said, sir, thank you, but no, thank you. I decided that after all these years at the Wharton business school, I don't want to be an investment banker anymore. And naturally I moved out to Hollywood. A lot of people go to Hollywood to lose themselves. I went there to find myself and I found myself going on auditions, mm. writing screenplays, I started writing again Beautiful. because I wanted to, I wanted to write screenplays that I could star in. I wanted to be a movie star. Uh, I wanted, and, and what I've figured out looking back on it is I was trying to become so famous that maybe my real father would see me and find me because my mom wouldn't tell me who he was or what he did or anything. Mm. You know, that was some big secret of her. So mm. I wrote 30 screenplays and 10 books during that period of time. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make any money from it. About 1995, I published a book with Penguin USA. It was their big book of the summer. And that's exactly the time when I started driving a taxi. And I drove a taxi from 1995 to 2001. <laughs> I had the big book of the summer for Penguin USA. And I was a taxi driver. <laughs> Priceless. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, people would get in the cab and yeah. say, Jesus Christ, you're like the best looking taxi driver I ever saw. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm an actor. I'm uh, struggling. You know, uh, I'm a struggling artist, you know. Uh, okay. And what I was living on a kept, boat. Yeah. What kept you what kept you going? I mean, this must have been so frustrating. Why were there not little voices to say, fuck off, come on, go back to be an investment banker. You had a guaranteed income. You had everything waiting there. 
all my fraternity brothers were working on Wall Street and they were all millionaires and billionaires. Every exactly. one of them. Exactly. Every, billionaires. Seriously. My point. My point. I, to me, look, uh, my, okay, along this journey, I met a woman on a bus at the Sundance Film Festival. And six months later, she was pregnant. And by the time I was 30, I, here, here was our picture for my 30th birthday. Here's my, here's my baby's mama. And she's sitting next to the, to the baby. Here's what she looks like. Here's what I look like. Here's what my parents look like. Where's the difference there, right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, and then a year later after that, she said, you know, I'm better off without you. I want you to move out. And that's when I moved onto a boat. I mean, we were engaged. I was going to marry her because we, we had a baby. Yeah. I'm a nice, I came from a, a nice family. You know, you know, you, you, we were going to get married and have that baby. And I moved on to a boat and I lived on the boat for six years. And that allowed me to live cheap because mm-hmm. it's only $282 a month. But that's when I was driving a cab from 1990. That's when I had my baby in 95. That's when my book was published. I drove a cab from 95 to 2001 mm-hmm. and I would make 500 bucks a week working two days a week, Friday night to Sunday night, I would drive the cab. I would do like 35 hours in that amount of time. And that's how I survived. That's when I started drinking all the time, really hard, hardcore. My friends lived on the dock. One of them was a film director and he, I, I get the boat. I go visit him on his dock the first day. And he goes, uh, you want a beer? Sure. He goes, uh, so tell me you drinking every day. And I said, yeah. And he goes, good. That's what we did. We, it was like a, it was like fraternity row all over again. Every guy had his own fraternity house. That was the boat. And we would drink every day and I'd smoke pot most of the days. And, you know, I got, I got a DUI and had to pay $10,000 to a lawyer that I I didn't have the $10,000, but somehow I came up with it. And that's when I met a very interesting man, because part of my settlement with the court was that I would attend uh, DUI classes. I had to attend like 10 DUI classes. Right. And the DUI instructor told a great story. He was a fascinating guy. And he told us this story of how he had been a nice Jewish boy who worked in his family's deli. And then he became a raging alcoholic and drug addict and how he had four DUIs, three times that he was married and divorced two times that he died and came back to life. And then 13 years of sobriety and recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous at that point. I don't know. I lost touch with him many years ago, but I wanted to find out if I was an alcoholic. And I I invited him. I said, you know, your story is so amazing. Why don't I write your story into a book? And we got together And he told me his whole in-depth story. And I wrote that book. It's called The True Life Story, The 100% True Life Story of a Nice Jewish Boy from Los Angeles. That's the name of that book. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to find out, was I a a drug addict and an alcoholic? And of course I wasn't. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) My ass. Of course I I wasn't. No, I wasn't. (laughs) He is. He is. He is. He was. He was. I, I wasn't. 
Because <laughs> I took the test. I took the test, the Johns Hopkins questions, right? Uh-huh. And I, I could only get two yeses. I couldn't get the third yes that oh, would condemn me to being an bullshit, alcoholic. Bullshit. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And so <laughs> I just continued on, you know, because I wasn't an alcoholic. It's not compared to him, certainly. Uh, and I continued on. And I kept drinking and smoking all the time, every day with my wife. She never smoked. She only drank, not as much as me, but she drank. And then we went to a raw vegan retreat because we needed to lose weight. And the rules of the retreat, we paid a lot of money to go there. The rules were no drugs or alcohol Uh while you're at the facility. Uh Uh-huh. So I want my money's worth. So I quit drinking and smoking for the two weeks that we were there. And then we go home. And the first thing I do is crack open a beautiful bottle of red Bordeaux. We grill up a rack of lamb. <laughs> but I stayed quit from smoking pot because cool. we were there for two weeks. And those cool. two weeks, this is December of 2009. Yeah. I stayed quit from pot. And I just kept drinking alcohol. Mm. And that was a really great thing because about a year and a half later, a year and a half later, I was walking by a cafe in Silver Lake, California, where there were a lot of 12 step meetings Mm. that would happen in this room there that I knew about because it was across the street from my construction site Mm. and my building that I was building there. And I just out of curiosity went into an NA meeting. I sat down and everyone's introducing themselves. My name is Joe and I'm an addict. I'm Mark and I'm an addict. I'm Jane and I'm an addict. And it came to me and I said, you know what? I've never said this before, but not, my name is Clint and I'm an addict. Cause as I was sitting there, I was thinking about smoking marijuana and how did I smoke every day? Yes. Did I smoke at the same time every day? Yes. Here's the third yes that I could never get with alcohol. Did I associate with a lower class of people in order to continue my addiction or some words to that effect? And the answer was yes, because there was a guy who was at the University of Pennsylvania when I was there and he had wanted to be a brother in our fraternity. And I thought he was such a loser because he was all about drugs and alcohol. No, he was all about drugs you know, magic mushrooms and smoking marijuana all the time. He was from California that I blackballed him out of the fraternity. But when I moved to Los Angeles after college, my girlfriend was friends with him and we started hanging out with him all the time. Why? (laughs) Because I wanted to smoke his pot because he had such great buds. Okay. And in that moment, I realized I had been associating with a lower class of people, Mm. a person who was not good enough to be my fraternity brother, but I was wanting to smoke his pot all the time. And that was my third yes. And that made me an addict. And I admitted it then. And I still continued to drink for more years, more years after that, five more years. Okay. And then what happened was I started going on TV in 2010. Just hold fire, hold because, fire, brother. Um, I, yeah. the, because we jumped there a little bit, because in your story, you were still living on the boat. You were still basically driving the bloody cab. You were still uh-huh. writing really good 
good stuff that no one wanted to buy and no one wanted to give you the Nobody money for. Exactly. So the investment bank was out. Your your dream of being creative, uh, it's it's cool when it finally brings some money in. But, you know, at some stage you need to say, come on, enough is enough now. So hang on, where yeah. are we between between enough is enough? What What made enough enough? And where did you get up with your construction? Okay, so baby's mama... We go out one night on a date early in the relationship. We walk into this bar in West Hollywood called Dantana's. And she goes, oh, wow, there's George Clooney. Let's go say hello. I go, you know him? She goes, yeah. We go over. Hey, George, how you doing? He goes, oh, this is what he says. Exactly what he says. Oh, Sarah, I am so fucking wasted right now. Now, if you don't like the language, you can blame George Clooney. He's the one who said it. I'm just repeating what he said, okay? That's exactly what he said. She goes, wow, congratulations on ER. That was his TV series. And it had just become the biggest TV series in America. And he Uh was the big sex symbol on that. He goes, oh, thank you. He was covered in tattoos. He was starring in a movie for uh, Quentin Tarantino called From Dusk Till Dawn. He had all these tattoos all over him. He had some big supermodel with him. He introduces us to the model. Sarah says... Yeah, this is Clint Arthur. I shake his hand. We go to the table. I go, how do you know George Clooney? She goes, I used to be his agent for 10 years. And I used to date him (laughs) and his best friend at the same time. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Exactly. And that's life, isn't it? That's life. And you're young. Yeah. It is, it's, it's just, it is what it is. <laughs> and then she goes, and stupid me, I got engaged to his best friend. <laughs> so, Priceless. So then she goes, look, you know, I always knew that he was going to be George Clooney and he always knew that he was going to be George Clooney. But you know who didn't know he was going to be George Clooney was Hollywood. If you look at his IMDb resume of all the TV shows and movies that he's done, you'll see he was always working for 10 years, but it takes 10 years to become an overnight success in Hollywood. And that became my marker. So here I am. Love and it. I, you know, I'm, I'm driving a cab. Oh, well, you know, I only got a few more years until I get to 10 years and I'm going to be an overnight success. Well, 10 years became 11 years and 11 years became 12 years. And I'm like, Hey, I'm overdue. I got to keep going. 12 years became 13 years. And that took us to new year's Eve of the millennium. And I'm behind the wheel of yellow cab number 6087. And in the backseat of the cab are these two guys who I'm hearing their conversation that they're MBA interns at Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. And one guy says to the other, hey, man, did you hear about Mr. Carrera? They made him the last partner before the IPO and he cashed out a gazillion dollars. And I'm like, hey, you guys talking about Chris Carrera? How do you know, Mr. Carrera? Chris Carrera was the pledge in my fraternity. When I was the pledge master, I used to make those guys dance around in the living room with their tidy whities on top of their heads. And now he just cashed out a gazillion dollars. And I went home that night when New Year's Eve was all over and counted up my money. $513. (laughs) I was supposed to be somebody special. Uh Where was Chris Carrera tonight? Partying at the Rainbow Room. And that's when I turned my pillow into a sponge, soaking up my tears. That's the night I burned all my screenplays. That's the night I decided that I was going to quit writing again because it wasn't worth it. And I was going to do whatever it took 
to try to have a normal freaking life uh, because exactly. I was terrified that I was never going to be able to stop being a taxi driver. Hmm. How do you, how do you get out of that when your only resume line item is yellow cab company? How do you, how do you, how do you turn your life around from that? Oh, fuck. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Absolutely. So yeah. what did, so the next day dawned, what did you do? Personal development, self-help work. I started taking seminars. Excellent. And one of the first ones I took was called Life Transformation. I uh-huh. swear to God, there was a seminar called Life Transformation at the Learning Annex. And then I started studying with that guy. I was paying him $400 a month. I would go to a weekly group class in his living room and one private coaching session per month, me and him. And he's the one who encouraged me to start doing entrepreneurial activities. And most importantly, he said to me, he goes, look, you know, the problem with Hollywood is that other people have to say yes. From now on, you're not allowed to do anything. Cause I had, I had, worked with that guy who said, you're drinking every day. Good. Well, he was a film director and I wrote a script with him and I was going to star in this script and he was going to direct it. And there was this, we raised money. uh, What a, what a cluster F that was. We tried to make that movie twice Uh and it never got completed with me starring in it. Uh I did everything you could possibly do to, to get a movie made. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get anything to happen. And my coach said to me from now on, if anyone else has to say, yes, you're not allowed to participate. You can only (laughs) do stuff where you're the only one who can say yes. If anybody has to say anything, you're out. And that got me focused on doing stuff where I had total control and that's what I needed to have. And that's when I got into gourmet food as an entrepreneurial venture. And I made quite a bit of money selling gourmet food throughout the two thousands. And then I got into real estate. My girl, my fiance at that time said, you know, real estate's going really good right now. It's around 2001, 2002. Uh, We should get into real estate. I didn't know anything about it. So I bought self-help programs. I bought Carlton sheets. I bought rich dad, poor dad tapes. And the next thing I bought was a fixer upper house. And then from the fix, I bought from the fixer upper, I bought a teardown from the teardown. I bought a vacant lot from the next thing. I bought two vacant lots. Uh And then I bought this building on sunset Boulevard across from that cafe where they had all the AA and NA and other AA meetings. Uh And that's, that's how I got to there. And then, uh, then the crazy thing happened. I was on a men's self-help team. See, it became 2008. The world was crumbling. Uh-huh. And I went, I had quit the men's teams because I thought they were beneath me. They were all a bunch of losers, but I was good. You know, I was making money. I had my life together, <laughs> drinking and smoking every day. You know, I could handle it. And <laughs> I could. I really could. <laughs> yeah, about that. About that. I'm just waiting I for could. the other shoe to drop now. <laughs> yeah, I could. I can handle it. And uh, <laughs> but 2008, the world started cr- crumbling, and I went back to the men's self help movement, and I joined a men's team, and I'm at a self help campfire, and the shaman points 
a crooked finger at me across the yellow and orange crackling flames of the campfire and says, you don't know it yet, but you're already dead. I said, what are you talking about, man? I'm the most successful guy on this team. Eight years ago, I was a cab driver. Now I'm a millionaire. I was living on a little boat. Now I live in a mansion. You're already dead. You just don't know. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but I couldn't stop thinking about that. And I'd wake up out of a sound sleep for months. I'm already dead. What does he mean? And I came to be 2009, New Year's Day. And I wake up and pour myself a mimosa and sit down with a legal pad and a pen to write down my list of goals for the year as I got accustomed to doing when I became successful as a businessman and stopped trying to be an actor and a writer. And I wrote and I asked myself a question. I said, what if this shaman is right? What if I am already dead, even though I don't know what that means? Or what if this was going to be the last year of my life and I was going to die at the end of this year? What would I want to accomplish? And I was amazed that the first thing I wrote down was I need to write my book about what I learned at the Wharton Business School that helped me become successful when I started to be an entrepreneur. And I wrote that book in 18 days. And then came the hard part, which is how do you sell books? Because after a year after I self-published that book, I had sold eight copies Correct. of exactly. a book yeah. called What They Teach You at the Wharton Business School. How, how is that possible? <laughs> so I, I seek Love out, it. right, a, a book about the best business school in the world and yeah. what they teach you there, yeah. and no one's interested. So I seek out a mentor. His name was Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul, was a little book that he produced. <laughs> a little book, yeah, that's right. And I say, Jack, how do you sell half a billion books? And he says, you got to become somebody. Nobody buys books from nobodies. They only buy books from people who are celebrities. You got to go on TV. So I started paying a publicist to get me on TV. And after I paid her $6,000 for my first four TV appearances, my wife goes, why do you keep paying this lady? Why don't you book yourself on TV? And I didn't know how to do that, but I had grown confidence. See, 13 years of chasing the Hollywood dream took away all my confidence. And, oh, you know what? I just put this together too. 13 years of chasing the Hollywood dream and drinking and smoking every day during that time <laughs> had taken away all my confidence. Yep, exactly. Exactly. How interesting is that? Uh, that? Quit, quitting smoking marijuana gave me back a lot of confidence. Mm. And I started making phone calls and I started figuring out how to book myself on TV. And after nine and a half weeks, I booked my first TV appearance myself. And that was like catching a fish. And I started booking a lot of TV and then people started asking me, how do you do this? So I made a training program to teach people how to book TV. And then I started focusing on going on TV a lot. And in, uh, December 31st, 2013, I was a guest on the Today Show and Brooke Shields interviewed me on that show. <laughs> and she said, you know, you talk a lot about being comfortable outside of your comfort zone. I said, yeah, life begins where your comfort zone ends. And she said, wow, that sounds scary. And I said, when it's scary is when it's great. Now, luckily for me, I guess I was still a little drunk from the night before that <laughs> when I was on that show early in the morning. 
I mean, this was the hard part about going on TV is that they're always morning shows. And, you know, I'd be drinking until one o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah. So I'd, I'd have to be a little buzzed. But in any case, we went out partying that night for New Year's Eve. And we went to Times Square. We went to dinner and I got very nicely buzzed at dinner because I would I had a martini and a bottle of wine. I had to drink a lot to catch a buzz. Uh-huh. And then and then we went to New Year's Eve in Times Square and I got a picture with Anderson Cooper and uh, and then we went to we went out and I still could just barely catch a buzz. And the next morning I woke up and it was New Year's Day of 2014. And I said to my wife, you know what? I think I'm done drinking. And I think about it all this time. And I, what, I, what I've come to understand of this whole situation is that I had achieved the pinnacle of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is self-actualization. I had made my unique contribution by achieving my highest aspiration, which was to get on the Today Show and to share my message. Willie Geist, he says, you know, Clint, you ask yourself a great question every year. What's that question? I said, ask yourself if this was going to be the last year of your life, what would you want to accomplish? That question has been my superpower, enable me to achieve all the stuff that I've achieved so quickly, because by that point I was making a lot of money Mm. as an expert, as an author, Mm. as a speaker, As a coach, I was making my unique difference. I had won an award as the information marketer of the year for my my mentors Mm. association of entrepreneurs and, and achieving that significance that, you know, Maslow has that hierarchy of needs for a reason. And I believe that achieving that was what enabled me to be able to quit drinking because I haven't had a, a sip since then. And it hasn't been easy. Mm-hmm. I think the first, the first month was the hardest mm-hmm. because of the rituals. Mm-hmm. And my, my wife was pissed. My wife was still drinking and my wife still drinks. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, she was really pissed at me because we had all these rituals. We mm-hmm. would drink every night and mm-hmm. I would open a bottle of wine over dinner. And there mm-hmm. I wasn't doing that anymore. And mm-hmm. she wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. Even a year or so into it, after I'd been sober a year or two years, one day I come home and there's a bottle of Campari on the counter. Campari and soda was one of my favorite drinks. And I said to her, what the hell is this doing in the house? What is wrong with you? Don't you see that I'm trying to yeah. quit drinking? Uh How come you're not supporting me in this? She wasn't for many years, but it got to the point where in 2019, I had a conference called the living legends of entrepreneurial marketing. And that's where Martha Stewart was one of my speakers and ice tea was a speaker. And Jerry from Ben and Jerry's ice cream was one of my speakers. (laughs) Very cool people. And after that was over, we went on a tour of Europe to celebrate. I took us to, uh, Paris and Venice. And thank God we went to Venice because I had been getting ready to write my Pulitzer nominated book, wisdom of the men Mm. for about five years at that point. Usually I write books very quickly, but this one was 
this one was intimidating me because I knew this had to be my big book. This had to be my life's work masterpiece, wisdom of the men, all the smartest things I learned from all these amazing men in my life Mm. because of my work with the men's teams. I felt I had this real unique vision of that. And when we got to Venice, I, I realized, wow, this place is so ingenious. Have you ever been there? Mm, I have. Yeah. It's an amazing place. How the hell, how the hell did they build that city? Out of the water. How do they have all these buildings coming out of the water, Uh out of the ocean? How is that possible? I was so inspired by the creativity, ingenuity, the genius of Venice. I said, if I could come back here for enough time, I could write Wisdom of the Men here. (laughs) And then we (laughs) good. And I did. I I ended up writing it in Venice for two weeks last summer. I wrote Wisdom of the Men in two weeks. It was easy for me to write it after seven years of getting ready. But then the next stop was Prague, Czechoslovakia. And I had a tiramisu for dessert one night. And I took a spoonful or a forkful of this tiramisu. And all of a sudden I felt a, a long forgotten, but familiar warm glow uh, spreading throughout <laughs> my body. And I call all over the waiter. And I said, is there alcohol in this tiramisu? Oh, of course yes. there is. Of course, of course. there is. <laughs> Not of course. I mean, Martha Stewart's tiramisu recipe doesn't have any alcohol in it. What the oh, heck is that? Where do you live, Clint? Anything in, in the Europe United has States got, of That's America. right. You know, in, in Europe, you have got, of course, everything is soaked in alcohol. <laughs> well, I sent it back. I got a bowl of ice cream instead. They still charge me seven euros for the one forkful of alcoholic tiramisu that I. Dear. That's interesting that you got that bus that you get that you that you felt that after one oh, spoon. Yeah. How amazing is that? She was so warm and friendly and inviting. I could have easily eaten that whole cake and no Uh, one would have ever known. (laughs) But I would have. Uh, Oh, good on you, man. Good on you. That's integrity, man. But that's equally, that's insight. You have learned to listen to your body. And it's interesting that you say the hierarchy of needs. May I ask, were you looking after the basis really well? Were you daily in your life, were you actually looking after your hydration? Did you eat healthy? Did you actually make sure you sleep? And my educated guess is, nah, because you can't work all day, be a a go-getter that you are, uh, and a very energetic person, then in the evening drink. Well, that's exactly the life I lived. And I know I was in the morning. I wasn't pretty. I was, uh, you know, often enough, either still still bust, as you said, or often enough hungover. Yeah. And so, no, this is, I did not look after myself. I did not show me the respect or the love that I do nowadays. How was your life then? You can't tell me that that all these self-improvement things, you were working on the tip of the, of the pyramid, and yet the basis was crumbling. Yeah, but the basis is like safety, food, uh, security, you know, I had a lot of money. Yeah. I you see. Know, I, so I, I, I see. Okay. So that's where you came from. Said, no, actually, I've got that ticked. Ah, yeah. interesting. So I, I, you know, maybe I didn't have it all. I didn't have as super firm a foundation as uh, I wanted to, but because I was sober from, uh, because I was sober, let's see. Let's see. You know, they talk about the rocket ride. That's what I really wanted. In AA, they talk about the rocket ride. And uh, at that point, 
I had already begun my rocket ride because I had quit smoking marijuana. Yeah. And again, I, I was able to handle alcohol. You know, I, I, yes, I got a DUI, but I was still able to quote unquote function pretty uh, well. High functioning even despite alcoholic. My, yeah. I was a high functioning, yeah. definitely. So I was able to, to progress up the pyramid of needs all the way to the peak uh-huh. because I was beginning my rocket ride. Uh-huh. And that's what I really wanted. That's what's helped me to stay sober all these years is I wanted the rocket ride. I didn't know what he was talking about when I was writing that book with the Jewish guy from Los Angeles, uh-huh. but he talked about that rocket ride and I wanted to find out what that was. And I tell you what, ever since I quit drinking alcohol, I really have been on the rocket ride and my income has jumped dramatically. Uh-huh dramatically and the things that I've been able to accomplish and the obstacles that I've been able to surmount, I never would have been able to overcome the difficult circumstances of my life. For example, when I had scheduled to do the leadership speakers Academy at West point military Academy with buzz Aldrin and three-star Lieutenant general Russell Honore as my two celebrity speakers. And then less than a month before the event, I get a call from West Point Military Academy telling me to go screw myself. The event is over. They're refunding my money. No, you can't do it. And I never would have been able to figure out how to do it anyway. Despite the US Army telling me, no, I still did it at West Point Military Academy with Buzz Aldrin and Lieutenant General Honore. I never could have figured that out if I had been drinking at that point. But that was five, it was four years after I quit drinking and I had the confidence uh-huh. to be able to make it happen. And then uh, another one, this one was the craziest. When I was doing my event with Dr. Oz at CNN Center in August of 2020, in the height of the pandemic, when Atlanta was having a hot spot for COVID. And I get a call from Dr. Oz's agent two days before he's supposed to show up. The agent calls me and says, Dr. Oz is not coming. He's keeping your money and you can go screw yourself. <laughs> and and I, I never would have been able to make that happen. Okay. And reverse that whole situation because I would have, I would have crumbled, but for my mind, I just couldn't see how that could possibly happen. I, 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 like, it just didn't make any sense to me that Dr. Oz was going to be that way to me. And in the end, he wasn't in the end, Dr. Oz showed up. Everybody got videos with Dr. Oz. Everybody was happy. He was a perfect gentleman. He was really, really super. And in fact, I'm going to be doing more stuff with him in in a couple of months because I I just couldn't see that really happening. But if I had been drinking and smoking, there's no way I could have handled it. Not not a possibility. So, of course, that would have been the why me or poor me, poor me, poor me, another one. That would be the first. Why does this keep happening to me? Exactly. That victim mentality. That is such a strong thing. Do you still suffer from imposter syndrome? Do you still suffer from from I'm still not good enough? 
okay, well, I call it something else. I call it who am I? And I believe that every expert, you know, because primarily my work is about being an expert. And I believe every expert and, and pretty much everyone has this thing about who am I? Who am I to think that I'm good enough to do this? Who am exactly. I to think that I can have a conference at Carnegie Hall with Martha Stewart? Exactly. Who am I to think that I can have Dr. Oz as my speaker on my stage at CNN? Who am I to do any of that? And I, I saw, you know, no matter how high you get in this world, you're never going to escape that. One time I saw Donald Trump Three weeks after he was elected president, he was doing a ribbon cutting on television. And I heard him say, hey, could you believe it? I'm the president. If Donald Trump as president of the United States can experience who am I, I think everyone can experience who am I. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. So, no, and that's really, really good what you're saying there, isn't it? It is these voices, they are ingrained in us. And some of us believe in them. Some of the uh, some of us listen to them so much that it completely destroys you. And this is this is just nuts. And often enough, these these voices are actually right. Wow, you're going way out there on a limb. And uh, yes, we are taking risks in daily life. Yes, we are doing that real estate deal that maybe no one else had actually thought about. Or But, but then again, you have done the numbers, you have done the due diligence. It's not something that you just woke up and think, huh, my left testicle is a bit lower than the right. I think I'm going to buy that property now. No, you've done due diligence. You have actually, when we look at in between the lines, what you have been telling us is you surrounded yourself with people who knew far more than you. You were always the dumbest guy on the team. You had a power team around you that was helping you, that was helping you to break through, see new avenues, see things. You always, you always were open. You were like a sponge to new ideas. You were also to respond to your own, to your own messages. You listened to them and you learned to distinguish between actually that's bullshit or actually, yeah, you're right. You're right. Because gut feeling, there is a gut feeling and we need to learn to listen to it. Now, sometimes it's right. And for some of us, many times it's right. And sometimes it's so blatantly wrong, but you just need to practice. It's going to the gym, basically. The first time you lift that dumbbell, you think, God, I can't lift that thing. You know, six months later, you throwing weights around us if there's nothing. Same with your gut feeling, same with your due diligence, same. You have created habits that allow you to move forward. You went through hard times, but you learned lessons from it. And you basically did something, stopped, assessed what was going on. Okay, did it work? Did it not work? And if it didn't, well, you tried something else. So ultimately, there are a lot of good habits there that you essentially implemented, either knowingly or, you know, over time uh, being seeded here and there by the, the gorgeous people that you came across on your path. So that's amazing. So there's a lot of action in your story. Nothing really fell in your lap. There is a lot nothing of nothing has fallen in my lap. Nothing <laughs> has fallen in my lap. I was on, a, on an interview a couple of weeks ago and this young millennial kid says, you know, like I, I, I keep hearing that like what I need to do is just keep doing the things that I love. And then eventually the success will come. And I said, nothing has ever come to me. 
I've had to fight and scrape and make every single goddamn thing happen myself because nothing has ever come to me. Uh, it's been a war and I've had to invest a lot of time, effort and money studying uh, from people who were smarter than me, yeah. who had more experience than me, yeah, yeah. who had done it before. These people are called mentors mm -hmm. and I've invested a lot of money in mentors and that's what's <laughs> helped me to achieve the things that I've done. Exactly. But then once I've gotten the momentum, I've learned from my own success and I've, mm -hmm. you know, the more I do, the more I'm able to do and the easier it is to do. For example, when I got an email about an opportunity to meet the Rolling Stones, all I had to do was donate $25,000 to their favorite charity. And my wife and I could be VIP guests at a concert outside of Amsterdam yeah. and get to meet the band and get photos. And I show it to my wife. I say, Hey, what do you think of that? She goes, that's really cool. It's like a once in a lifetime opportunity, but that's crazy. $25,000. And then the next day I got another email from it about the same thing. And on a whim, I just clicked the link and my iPhone filled in all the details with my credit card information. And I pressed confirm and lo and behold, I said, Hey, Allie, guess what? We're going to meet the Rolling Stones. She goes, you did not pay $25,000. I said, yes, I did. <laughs> it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and we're going, that's what money is for. So, <laughs> okay. So that was the first time. Then a, a couple, like two years ago, I get an email about Tony Robbins. Oh. You know who that is? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> you, you think he's a big deal. Oh, hell yeah. Everybody knows who Tony Robbins is. It's not true. It's a very fascinating thing. Tony Robbins is what I call a celebrity entrepreneur. His customers and prospects know who he is. Uh -huh. The rest of the world has no idea. And I could easily show you several videos of people. And I say, what do you think of Tony Robbins? And they say, Tony who? Because really? they have no idea who he is. Right. They're construction workers. They're baristas at Starbucks. They're clerks at CVS right. pharmacy. They don't know who he is. They're not into personal development and self-help uh, like you and I are. Okay. We're his target market. Yeah. This is celebrity entrepreneurship. I wrote a whole book about celebrity entrepreneurship called Celebrity Entrepreneurship. It's a great book. <laughs> This okay. is what I am. Yeah. That's why when you introduce me, you're like, wow, you know, some of you may not know who he is, but in America, he's really famous. I, I'm actually the most famous person in the world that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> Priceless. Except for, Priceless. except for my customers and prospects. I call them clients. My clients know who I am. They pay a lot of money to work with me because of what I've done. And that's celebrity entrepreneurship, just like Tony Robbins. And the great news is, is you don't have to be as famous as Tony Robbins to make lots of more impact, influence, and income yeah. if you're a celebrity entrepreneur. So I get this email about Tony Robbins in February of 2020. And it says, hey, Clint, if you donate $25,000 to Tony Robbins' favorite charity, mm -hmm then you can be the host of his 60th birthday party in Los Angeles for 5,000 people. It took me less than one minute to pay the $25,000 to the charity. One minute. And I didn't even ask my wife. I just said, hey, guess what? We're, we're going to be the hosts of Tony Robbins' birthday party. She's like, really? What did that cost? I'm like, 25,000. And she's like, okay, cool. So we did that. And when I, when I saw Tony at his birthday party, I said, Tony, what's the most important thing you ever learned? He said, life is happening for us. It's all happening for us. 
drinking and smoking all those decades. I, I guess it happened for me. You know, I, I look back on it, but you know, in junior high school, there was this kid you may have heard of. He was in my same class. I was Tony in West Side Story. He was the lead in Hair. His name is Robert Downey Jr. You ever hear him? <laughs> yep. And I think about like, okay, I was, you know, how come I didn't make it in Hollywood all those years? Why, why was I drinking and smoking away my opportunities the way I did? Because I think that was the key difference. And I realized that life was happening for me somehow. Hmm. Maybe if I had become Robert Downey Jr. Two, maybe I would have ended up in jail and on the other side of the hard drugs that he was doing and yeah. would have died. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just know that life is happening for us. And then when I met Mick Jagger, you want to know what Mick Jagger said when I asked him, sir, Mick, what's the most important thing you ever learned? He said, you can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometimes you might find, get what you need. <laughs> right. Okay. Which is the same exact thing as what Tony Robbins said. <laughs> I like it. And that's, you're echoing exactly in different words, you're echoing the sentiment of virtually every guest I had on this show. Because bottom line is, <laughs> no, honestly, honestly, we all have gone through shit and you think, what the hell? Where, why did I have to suffer all this trauma? And there is a reason for it because it made you who you are now. It made you the guy who is sitting now in front of me and is having the balls to actually own up to... Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. That is what it made you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Show off. Show off. I can show you some rainy windows at the moment. <laughs> no, but you're right. It is. You You have gone through what you have gone through. You made a m mistakes. Are they mistakes? You made decisions that were right for you at that moment in time. At, at, I don't think you, you stood there and said, I want to fuck up my life. Let me drink some more. No, these were, mm. you made the best call with the information that you had, with the settings in which you were. And that is the same for our parents. That is the same, I'm sure, for your mom. She, she, that she never told you about your dad. That was not, she wanted, she didn't want to fuck you up. She, she believed strongly that this was the best thing she could do as a mom so therefore let's go out from that so that's where my main mantra comes in the past does not equal the future and whatever happened to you in your past whatever decisions you made whatever maybe bad things you did you did them because at that time that is what you needed to do okay and you you made mistakes so what we all do every single bloody person in this world makes mistakes And some of us are lucky enough to make more than others because with every mistake we learn. And absolutely. So sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And oh boy, did I learn in my life. Okay. So, but now I'm winning. Now I'm winning because I found success formulas, but I didn't come up with them myself. No, some clever people before me have figured some one or two things out like you, you know, the wisdom of the man. That is where your Pulitzer nominated book that is, is out now. You know, you had done exactly that. You listened to a power team around you and you asked questions. You again, you took action. 
you didn't just say, oh, oh so Mick, oh, that's so nice that you're that you're there. Oh, I'm starstruck. Oh, shake his hand. No, you asked him a question. Mm-hmm. You actually went out there and you challenged him. You said, hey, come on, man. Tell me, what, what's, the, what's the, the secret to life? Okay. Now, who does that? Only people who actually have realized that there's so much that they can gain by simply taking action. Wisdom of the man. There you go. All these men are in this. You know, how I went from a taxi driver to working with international superstars and five U.S. presidents revealing all my secrets so you can do it too. Uh-huh. All these people are in it. I, I asked most of them that question because I started asking that question specifically back in like 2007, around yeah. there, with George Bush, George H.W. Yeah. Bush. She was the first president I ever met. And I asked him, what's the most important thing he ever learned? He said, well, young man, that's a very big question. But <laughs> I guess I'd have to say that in life, you have to keep doing the things you love to do. And in the picture of me and George Bush, he's wearing a necktie. And the necktie has little pictures of parachute jumpers on the necktie. And he uh-huh. loved he loved to jump out of airplanes. Here's the picture. Oh, and yeah. the parachute Excellent. Yeah. And he loved to jump out of airplanes with parachutes. He jumped out of an airplane on his 80th birthday with a parachute. That was a famous cool. photo of him parachuting. You know, like, and, and, you know, there's five presidents in this book and I don't care what you think of their politics. You got to respect the fact that they became president of the United States. They got to know something. Correct. They got to have some kind of smarts. And I've tried to find, you know, the lessons from, from everyone that I've met or what it meant to me as a result, because life is happening for me and all of this you know, what you got today in this interview was like the cliff notes of this book. If you enjoyed hearing <laughs> these stories, there's a whole lot more. The audio version of this book on Audible is nine and a half hours long. So <laughs> I narrated that book and I did a great job on that. And if you oh, like yeah. it, I hope you'll crack off one of your Audible credits and listen to all of it because <laughs> I have tried to, you know, I can never get rid of all my Audible credits. I got, they just <laughs> yeah, same here, actually. Up, same here. Right? So, <laughs> You'll like it. If you like this interview, you'll like the audible version of Wisdom of the Men. And hopefully Hmm. the Pulitzer Committee can realize that this is my time because my creative writing teacher in high school, God bless him. I went to his museum, went to his freaking museum in Ireland. They made a museum about him. And this is how life is working for me. On that tour, When we went to Venice and Prague, like I was telling you, my wife in the middle of the tour, she go, we were there for like 19 days on that tour. And about halfway through, she goes, you know, you have us stopping off in Dublin on our way back because I wanted to break up the flight. I don't like to take super long flights if I can break them up. She goes, you have us stopping in Dublin. Why don't we go to the Frank McCourt Museum while we're in Ireland? I go, wow, that'd be cool. She arranges for us to have a private tour of the museum from the founder and chief curator of the museum, especially before opening hours, because we have to catch a flight. And when we get there, there's a sign in front of the museum closing forever, two days from now. We didn't know. We just happened to be there. We just happened to be at the museum two days before it closed forever. And we got our private tour 
And here I am with my mentor who changed my life forever by inspiring me to want to be a writer, Frank McCourt, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Angela's Ashes. And I knew like, you know, I've written, I've written 21 best-selling books, but none of them was great like this. None of them, none of them had this 90,000 words, my whole life, putting my whole life and soul. And then, and you know, I want to, you know, if you've enjoyed these stories, why have, why have I been good at telling these stories? Because I've been practicing these stories for a decade, <laughs> just the way he was practicing his stories on us. That's why our class was so great because he'd come in every day, hung over or whatever he was. And he would tell us stories about his childhood in Ireland with no money, impoverished, oh. with a father who would drink away all the, the dole every week or every month. And that's how he practiced his stories. And for 10 years, I've been a speaker and that's how I practiced the stories for this book. And that's why this book came out of me in only two weeks because I did all the editing and years and years of storytelling on stage. And that's why it is what it is. So there you go. Wow. Uh, hopefully. So you guys out there, Pulitzer, Pulitzer people, did you listen? <laughs> guys, okay, so so we need to to sort of attack them in into this interview. Hey guys, you need to listen to that dude. Come on. <laughs> so no, it is it is amazing. Clint, you're an amazing man. Um thank you. The, the, what really interests me though is who do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. What will happen from now? Pulitzer Prize, okay, that's a nice little stepping stone. But no, you're not done, man. What will uh, I'm also now? I'm also nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature, just as you are. That's a, that's a that's a great honor too, and I'm really excited about that. That was not easy to pull that off. <laughs> you think so? That was not easy. Oh, priceless! <laughs> I, I you know here's the here's the scary thing is like it's. I don't want to be a target because there's so many, so many people, once you get like, I had an Uber driver one time and he said to me, you know, I, I couldn't help but overhearing your phone conversation just now, sir. He was driving me from the airport in Atlanta to CNN center for one of my celebrity launch pads where I help people learn how to book themselves on TV, mm -hmm. which has been my most successful seminar. I'm doing my 51st celebrity launch pad next week here in Acapulco. <laughs> okay. And it's a $10,000 ticket and there's 12 people in every one. So you can do the math of how much money I've made just on the front end of that seminar. And he goes, uh, I, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation. You sound from the way you talk, you sound like you're somebody, but I don't recognize you. Are you famous? And I said, I'm the most famous guy in the world that nobody's ever heard of. Only my clients think that I'm famous, but they think I'm really famous and they're happy to pay me a lot of money. And he goes, you sound like you have the best of both worlds because I drive a lot of celebrities in my limousine here. And I hear from a lot of them that they, you know, they miss the privacy. They, they regret, you know, the sacrifices that comes along with being famous. And, but you have all the upside without the downside. So I, you know, there was a time when I met Chris Carrera's parents, the guy who, became the partner at Goldman Sachs. When I met his parents, they said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be the mayor of New York City. That's what I said. 
but I would never want to do that now because man, you got a target on you. Well, exactly. You go into politics. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I mean, you I kind, kind of recognize you recognize the leader by the amount of arrows that are in his back. So no, yeah. no. Why would you want to do that? I kind of want to do the same thing with my celebrity as I did with my drinking. I want to ride the line. Right. I want, I want to go, I want to go just a little too far, but not lose control of everything. You know, I want to win the Pulitzer prize and the Nobel prize, but I, you know, but who the heck knows who won the Pulitzer prize? Okay. Who the heck knows who won the, the, the Nobel prize for literature? Those, those are not like, that's not George Clooney. That's not Donald Trump. That's not Kim Kardashian. That's a certain level. That's a certain type of celebrity. That's what I really want. I want like, that. I How's think that? that that is a very wise, wise call. Okay. No. Wow. That is, I didn't see that coming, but it makes perfect sense what you're saying there. Perfect sense. And you want to be happy in, in who you are. You want to look, you want to get up and in the morning walk half tired in the bathroom, look in the mirror and think, okay, every single scar there that is earned, every single wrinkle that is earned, and I'm proud of myself. That is that is who you are becoming. That is who you are. That's a lot easier to do every day when I'm not hungover. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> what a perfect, what a perfect ending of this this fantastic interview. Clint, you're an amazing Thank man. Uh, I'm Thank so honored. I'm so humbled that you came onto my show. It is you. You said so many true words you you worked bloody hard in your life to have the success that you now have every single cent every single smile every single belly laughter you have earned the hard way and that for that i i that is kudos but i still feel that the biggest achievement in your life was to actually say bye-bye to drink bye-bye to alcohol and for that all the other things, whilst they are pretty, they pale in comparison to the strength that you showed by deciding not to drink anymore. And the rest that, was easy. <laughs> exactly. Brother, you yeah. are an amazing man, Clint. I uh, Now I've got a rather long reading list to do. There's 21 books. Come on, man. I try I try to read all the books of the, of the, the guys that I bring onto my show. You, you put me a little bit behind, okay? <laughs> there's, but there's a lot of there's a lot of good ones. The last year of your life is really good. The greatest <laughs> book of all time. I'll just tell you, get one or the other because the greatest book of all time is the last year of your life with accompanying audios and videos each week for that 52 week process. Right. So if you, you get the greatest book of all time, you don't need to get the last year of your life. Cool. But celebrity entrepreneurship is really good. But yeah. you know this one exactly. has my whole entire life in it. So if you can only pick one, this is the one. Beautiful. And right. where can people find you? Where is the uh, best place? Clint.com. C-L-I-N-T-T-T. Three T's. Why three T's? One of my, one of my clients is a nameology expert. She's a, she tells you about your name and what that means. She goes, man, and I really wish you could add a T to the end of Clint because the T's always end up on top. And I couldn't get Clint with two T's.com, but I could get Clint with three T's.com. And that's what I got. <laughs> 
Perfect. So guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. Press the like and subscribe button whilst you're down there and check Clint's workout. I mean, it, he would be stupid not to. And uh, it, of all the books, uh, I think in, in sequence, The Wisdom of the Man uh, needs to be high up on my list, number one. But then the celebrity entrepreneurship must be number two, because that's, I think these are the things that really speak to me at the moment. But as so many things, healing and living and all that comes in layers. And you can't do everything at the same time, but do something. Start with something. That's what you have done. You've never stood still. You always worked hard. And you always, you just sometimes just worked in the direction that was not working. You ran into the same freaking wall again and again. And, and I mean, I give you kudos for that. <laughs> Consistency. <laughs> At some stage, you have to say, okay, that wall is stronger. <laughs> let's go around it or let's go somewhere else. <laughs> wow. Clint, thank you so much for your time. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Stay strong. I believe in you guys. Go out there and live with passion. Bye.